Greetings, I'm Tyler, and this is The Socialized Recluse. My guest this time is the creator and resident plate-spinning human behind Button Down, the, quote, easiest way to build and run your newsletter, Justin Duke. And in the interest of full disclosure, amid the sounds of my neighbors building stuff in their backyard, I use Button Down for my own newsletter, Macro Parentheticals, and... Yeah, I offer you no apologies for the effusive tone that my questioning will take, because button-down is excellent. So over the course of the next 45 minutes of your life, you can hear Justin and I talk about the origins of button-down, about what newsletters can be at their best, about tools versus ecosystems, about the Super Mario Brothers influence, particularly Worlds 1-1 through 1-4, behind button-down, and you can also witness me stumble over why I started a newsletter in the first place. As ever, if you'd like to shout, scream, swear, say hi, or otherwise, my email is TWW at parentheticalrecluse.com. You can check out earlier episodes of this show at parentheticalrecluse.com slash TSRpod and subscribe via RSS, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred podcast delivery system. And now, my chat with Justin. At their best, what are newsletters? What can they be? Ooh, I love that. I think for me personally, newsletters at their best are a combination of two things. One is ephemeral writing, which I think is more and more sacred as time passes, right? As we get to this world where everything is archived, everything is digitized. Like all of that is, is great and noble and I think useful in a lot of ways, but it can cheapen, uh, it can cheapen the written word. You know, the, every, I cringe a little bit every time I see someone refer to an essay or a chapter of what could be a book or anything as content, right? Like I think newsletters at their best are a, a little gift to you in your inbox that you get to read and discard as if it's like this sacred bit of, you know, pamphleture that, that you come across. I think that's one aspect of it. And the other aspect of it that is really the reason I'm so passionate about the genre is it's a relationship between a reader and an author, right? It's something that is actually bi-directional of newsletters are kind of interesting and in vogue right now because of this relationship and its commercial aspects. But I think the readership aspect of you as a subscriber kind of grant authors a little sliver of daylight into your reading habits in your inbox and vice versa. That really doesn't happen in any other broadcast medium. So many other broadcast media are, are fan out, right? Like you as a writer, if you're publishing to a blog via RSS or using, you know, Twitter or any of sort of the, the big tech governed things, like you often will have more reach, but at a certain cost of not really understanding the full scale of your social graph. What I love about newsletters is it's a way to have an ephemeral but intimate relationship with the folks to whom you write. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, when I, so when I first had to start writing newsletters, I was running a nonprofit and it was just a quarterly thing and I just hated doing it. And now it's I, I've been writing my own my own thing for ten years and doing it weekly, and it is that like that bit of daylight. I love that. That's I, I'm going to steal that. I'm going <laughs> to use that. Um, so, but what were you? I mean, one of the things I really love about about button down about your work is that you know it's that it didn't exist, so I'm going to build it ethos. And so, what was it? that you were looking for that didn't exist when you... Absolutely. Um, I was using for a long time a tool that I believe is still around called Tiny Letter, which mm -hmm. is it's an app now owned by MailChimp. It is exactly what I think the name proffers. It's a very small email newsletter tool. Um, it was bare bones. The idea was, you know, you have a subscriber base and you can add folks manually or they can subscribe and you send out emails. And the value prop, frankly, was very similar to what button down was minus a couple of things like the interface for writing within tiny letter was pretty clunky. The app was like flaky in a lot of ways that 
make my engineer brain and frankly my engineer heart boil a little bit of like, oh, this just like I, I accidentally closed out of this window and I lost, you know, uh, an hour's worth of writing or I hit send and nothing's happened and I don't know why and the app won't tell me why. Like all of these little things that sort of added up to the, the soul of this product matches onto really what I kind of want, but it doesn't work quite the way I want it. Like the, uh, it is correctly identifying the need I have, but it doesn't quite satisfy that. And I had the worst thought any engineer or any developer can really have, which is I bet I can build a better version of that myself <laughs> in a weekend, right? Which is never ever true, but I had that idea burrowed away in my head for a while. And I ultimately said, okay, what would it take for me to just try and build a version of this, not to host online, not to have other people use, but just for me, like I can figure out the right, you know, third-party services and internal databases and all of that to get it working for me, just so I don't have to use this other app. I can use my own app. That concept of being able to build something for myself was, was so intensely attractive. I really couldn't get it out of my head. That, that, I was going to ask that. What was the point of no return for you on that? It was like, you know, you have to do this. Was that it? Oh, it, it was. I, I remember this specifically. I was in, uh, I just moved to Richmond, Virginia, the, the east coast of the United States, but I was living in Seattle for a while. And I remember sitting in this coffee shop and hitting send on a letter and it just zeroed out. The entire thing basically did a full refresh. And I had written the letter in tiny letters interface, uh, it all vanished. And I just was basically left with an empty screen, no error state, no like, hey, here's what happened. Here's the email we tried to send and failed. It was just like completely blank. And I was like, okay, this is some sort of sign from the technological gods that I need to give this a shot. Um, so, I mean, has that sort of, it doesn't exist, so I'm gonna build it myself, always been a part of you? I mean, where did that come from? Was it inspiration from somewhere? Was it a reaction against something? I never honestly thought it was a remarkable thing for a long time in the, in the sense of like, I think in certain tech spaces, there is like a, uh, almost a fetishization of like building your own tools, like as if there's like inherent moral value in like using a thing that you've crafted yourself. I think I came at it from a pragmatic lens of just like sometimes well, one of the virtues I think of being a software developer and being an engineer is you can build things because you want them to exist in the world, not because you have to, not because that's the correct thing to do, but because it's fun and entertaining. Like I was the kind of person who was so excited by the prospects of building software that like, that was not just my day job. That was my hobby. That's what I wanted to spend my time doing. There, the reason I got into software development in the first place was being able to like, write some code as if it's like a magic spell and hit refresh in my web browser and see the thing come to life. Like that feedback loop is still so intoxicating and still so addicting. It's why I love continuing to, to work on things primarily for myself. I think there is a bit of a fallacy that if you're building something, you need to build it with an end game in mind. Um, the author Robin Sloan had an essay from a couple of years back that I really loved. And the title really says it all. It says uh, an app can be a home cooked meal. And I, I think that philosophy I really have internalized a lot, which is you can build something not because, you know, especially being in the tech industry, there's a lot of talk about scaling and how do you uh, maximize customer growth and how do you hit revenue targets and all of that. And there's nothing wrong with those approaches, but the idea of like, all software has to approach that and has to come at the, the raison d'etre of like corporate value feels so incorrect to me. It's, uh, it can, I think building software can be the equivalent of like having a hobby shop in your backyard or like getting to tool around with carpentry or woodworking in your spare time. It can be something that has uh, entertainment value and utility, not just one or the other. That was, that was the, I, I was about to say that it feels like you 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 approach it from sort of that woodcrafter's perspective that you know it's just you do it to do it. And, exactly. Yeah. Um, so I mean, in the main like copy for button down, you said that you wanted to make a tool, not an ecosystem. And so I mean, I know you're you're not a fan. Neither am I of the doing a Substack or on my Substack or whatever. Um, so what does the kind of the 
and I might have my terminology wrong here, but what does that sort of ecosystem interpretation of the newsletter medium, um, you know, because I'm, I'm a writer and I view a newsletter as one of the most exciting media to work in. Um, so as for like creative experimentation, whatever, but so what does that interpretation, the ecosystem interpretation get wrong about newsletters? I think your framing of it really says it all right, which is a question of nomenclature. What, what is the noun that you're building? Um, I have no, again, like moral stance against Substacks, but when you build a Substack, you are building a Substack. You are writing on their platform, and it's it's a bit of a Faustian bargain in the sense of you get a very strong ecosystem of other readers and writers and the network effects that that entails, but the downside is you are ultimately publishing something to a centrally controlled platform. You are contributing to the larger ecosystem as opposed to having what I kind of mentioned earlier, which is the sacred intimacy between writer and reader. I think you see this a lot in other phases of publishing on the web as well, right? Like we had an era where a lot of folks who published on the web had their own website and had their own personal domain space. And over time, those things got subsumed into, you know, the blog spots and the mediums of the world. And then it kind of shifted backwards as those uh, platforms kind of succeeded in some ways, failed in others, there's always gonna be that tug and pull where the relationship with the platform and the platform user can be mutually beneficial, but often there are points in friction of, I want to make a decision as a user that maybe the platform doesn't want. Like I want to have very minimalistic branding, but the platform really wants folks to know, hey, this is a Substack, and you're tied into these other newsletters. And I think it's, a tricky balance to have. One of the things that is not, not necessarily unsustainable, but harder to sustain in this industry is if you're a publishing tool and you take venture capital and you need to hit certain growth targets, that means you often have to prioritize how do we grow this business? How do we increase revenue? How do we increase activity over how do we make this the best possible experience for authors and for readers? And I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with that. I think Substack has done a lot to grow the newsletter ecosystem writ large, even if they've done so in directions that I don't agree with. But I love the ability to be frankly <laughs> picky and you know uh, sometimes nitpicky with what I like to build within button down because I have the luxury of saying, first and foremost, what are the things I would want in a tool? Not what is the best to grow revenue this quarter, not what is going to bring more authors onto the site. But if I narrow my lens to myself and the people who I think think like me, what is the right choice? And I think that unlocks a lot of opportunities in order to build something that I, I'm proud of building and also frankly proud of using. Yeah. I, this next one actually kind of follows up on that is that, you know, I, I, as a, as a user, I mean, I tend to leave services when they, they strike out beyond that. I call it sort of like a, a blank slate functionality. Um, because to me, when that line gets crossed, they become the one, the platform becomes the ones dictating how I use their service and not the other way around. But what I really appreciate about button down is that while you do add features they to me they they deepen and and kind of supplement and solidify what's already there but really leave the basic core of what it is of what button down is in place so i was wondering if you like guide, guide me through your decision process as to what to add for sure for sure and taking a step back one of the metaphors I really love in terms of how to deepen those interactions as you phrased it, because that is really my goal is to, whenever I add something to button down surface area to either enhance or at the very least protect the core interaction that folks uh, deal with. And the philosophy I, I like and draw a lot of inspiration from is actually video games. If you think of say, you know, Super Mario, right? Uh, the original one for the Nintendo where you've got, what is it, the, the 32 levels? Like 
uh, eight worlds and, and four levels on each world. You start off on the first world by just jumping, you've got the little Goomba and then you need to go up the bricks and your interaction space is pretty simple, right? You jump, you run, you suddenly understand what a monster is. You understand what the little blocks that if you uh, hit the blocks from below, they'll break. Uh, you understand what the pit of death at the bottom looks like and so on and so forth. And in each successive level in those first couple worlds, that core interaction is the same, but there's you know a couple new things tossed in. There's an underwater level, you have to deal with uh, bullet bills, you have to deal with Koopas, like each little area adds some level of complexity without actually cheapening those original mechanisms that you hold on to. Like at the end of the day, you're still running and jumping and dodging and trying to kill the baddies, but you're doing so with uh, an increasing skill threshold. And I try to approach button down in the same way, which is thinking a lot on the two core experiences, which is the new user experience and then the old, not even old, but let's say veteran user experience of what does this look like to someone who has never seen button down before? And what does this look like to someone who has used button down every day or every week for the past three years? What is the delta in their experience based on this thing that I might add? Often it can be positive. And frankly, I, one of the exercises that I love going through myself is every month or so, I will go through button down's new registration flow and kind of go through the process of importing some subscribers and adding a couple more and writing and sending out an email, trying to do so with as fresh eyes as possible. And I, I pretty quickly realized like, oh, this settings page that was, you know, four or five little uh, inputs or text areas five years ago has now <laughs> sprawled out of control because I've added too much stuff. So I need to really take a step back and figure out how I can tear this down and make it more approachable. Or, oh, this subscribers page seemed really, really basic a couple of years ago, but I've added too many power user features. So now I need to pull some of those out and uh, make them discoverable, but not necessarily front and center, because if you're launching a newsletter for the first time, you really don't care about those things. You're just trying to grow the base or understand where the folks came in from. So focusing on the core new user experience and then the core old experience. But the other thing too that I'm, I'm pretty mindful of is there's a large swath of stuff that is good for everyone, right? The, the classic um, use case I have in mind that is, is really a power user use case, uh, but a lot of folks ask for it. It's probably Bundown's most requested feature is the ability to set up sort of like automated emails, right? Of you sign up for the first time, you get an email welcoming you, and then you get an email the next day sending you one other thing from the archives, maybe a week later, something after that. Uh, this is something that's relatively easy to hide for new users and show up to discover for old users, but it adds to the surface area of button down in terms of the core responsibilities button down has a, as a tool in a really untenable way, right? It's yeah. suddenly a, a outgrowth, like a peninsula in all the jobs that button down needs to be able to handle well. Mm -hmm. And for those cases, I err on the side of not doing them purely for the reason of, I want button down to be small at heart. I want button down to eventually someday be as finished as a software product can be. And the easiest way to push out that horizon is to add surface area. So when I'm looking at things to, to change or to modify with button down, I really try and bias towards refinement over addition, if that makes sense. Like yeah, absolutely. rather than rather than think of the the things that I can add to make it a more featureful product is how do I take these existing features and make them more useful? Okay. Yeah. No, that makes sense. I I like I said, I appreciate that that attention to to refinement that you you add to it, that you give to it. Um like I said, that it it has been a I at least in my experience, I mean, I think I've been a year or two years now, and it has just really, it has consistently made me enjoy the process of writing a newsletter. Um, well, if you don't mind me asking, mm -hmm. what what made you start a newsletter? Uh, let's see. You're asking me to go back 10 years, man. <laughs> uh, let's see. I truthfully think I wanted to 
I really wanted to get away from social media and and I wanted and I have considered the newsletter in all of its forms to sort of be my lifeboat from it that I, I, I collect some of my followers from there and it's like, okay, I'm going here now, you know? Um, but really I, and I go back to that, what I had said earlier was that I had, I just hated writing them when I ran the nonprofit and it was probably because of the stuff I had to write for the nonprofit. It wasn't me. Um, but it just, as I've gotten to experiment with it and as I've gotten to work with it as a form my love for it has only grown. And yeah, I mean, that it, it was an effort to, to get away from the, the big, bigger social media, um, you know, basically refocus all of my efforts onto my, my blog, my newsletter. And it also, and what it has turned into for me is a great way to end the week. You know, that has been the biggest thing for me. It's like, okay, I feel like my week is done. I needed that. Now I can go back to what I was working on. I'll see you in a week. That totally, totally makes sense. Um, I, I think you kind of touched on two things there. One is really the incentive mechanism, right, that you get from writing a newsletter as compared to social media, where the, you know, the, the engagement metric is readers reading your thing and replying to it. And as opposed to you know likes or retweets or anything that feels uh, transactional at best and facile at worst, well, right? Like yeah, you, that that was ahead. actually one one thing on there too was that as I I have found that when I interact with readers for, from a newsletter, they are interacting with me because they want to interact with me. Since it's private, there is no um, I can't think of the word right now, but there is is there's no like performative aspect to it in public. <laughs> exactly. You know, it is a genuine interaction. And I like that. I like the, the lack of superficiality in it. You know, it, it does feel like you're letter writing and that there is actually thought behind it, not just sort of a, that was stupid or something, you know? <laughs> I mean, there's that too, but you know, it, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, I do appreciate that interaction, and it just feels more. It feels more real, I, I, as real as you can get in a digital forum. Um, it Abs just, absolutely. Yeah, no, I mean that really is. Anyhow, I totally interrupted your thought. I hope you remember where you were going because I don't. Oh, I was. I was just going to remark that I thought it was. It was very funny. You mentioned like it's the way you end your week. Uh, I am sadly no longer writing my own weekly newsletter because uh, one of the curses of building a newsletter tool is you spend so much time building the tool that you lose the muscle memory that uh, that brought you to to build the tool. But I had the exact same system of I would go to a different coffee shop every single Sunday evening and sort of camp out my week by really downloading all of, all of my thoughts and feelings and what was going on and what was on my mind into a little newsletter. And like that, that was my uh, sort of personal tea ceremony or personal detox. Ceremony is that your, like, your week notes newsletter? Uh, the week notes is still active. Okay. Technically I still do that, but that feels more, uh, more focused on pure engineering, gotcha. um, okay. which is still, still very useful in of itself. But uh, when I was, writing to just write uh, the newsletter that ultimately caused me to fill a button down. It was, it was more of a personal one of like, hey, here's where I've traveled this week. This is what's going on. Here's some interesting things I read in my commentary on them. Much more free flowing, less prescriptive in terms of what the subject matter was going to be. Mm -hmm. um, I've actually en enjoyed writing week notes specifically because uh, it, the strictness of form and one of the things I actually do to kind of like impose a casualness on myself as I say, I'm going to sit down, I'm going to give myself 20, 25 minutes, nothing more. If it hits 30 minutes, I have to hit send. And I'm just going to write from the heart, not really focus on editing, not focus on, you know, narrative through lines, but just like, what is top of mind? Let me regurgitate that specifically as it regards to button down. Mm -hmm. um, and, and having that is is definitely useful in of itself because it, it lends a certain structure, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it feels like part of the routine. 
I always kind of say it feels like part of the routine without being routine. <laughs> uh, but yeah, one of the things that I do, um, and this gets back to the frequency and form thing, is that you know with the blog, it, I just kind I do a daily little thing there. I throw whatever I feel like throwing onto throughout the day, and when I write in general, I'm always you know I use sort of my own hybrid of a Zettelkasten system. And so I'm always writing in these fragments and shards. And so I just sort of feel like the newsletter at the end of the week is the way I process all of those ones that I didn't get to. You know, it, it gives it a home. I, I like that concept of it giving it a home. And it probably acts as a bit of a, a personal journal for you, right? Like, do you ever yeah. go back and read through your archives from, oh God, from no. years ago? And oh, be God, like, no. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> no, I do not. Um, once once it's written, it's done. That's uh, uh, that that it's, it's filed away into the ether. yes. That version of me has been filed off. New version starts on Monday. Congratulations, reader! You meet the totally exhausted one on Sunday. Uh, so, yeah, I, I did. I answer your your question, or I mean, was there more you? you no, that was perfect. Okay. Um, so, you know, I. One of the things also that I, I enjoyed, one of the things that pulled me towards using Button Down, um, because I, I was looking, I needed out of MailChimp. That place was just, I couldn't handle it anymore. I couldn't make sense of it. I just gave up. Um, but I appreciated that, you know, you use Markdown and because, you know, it's future proof, as you call it, you and others call it. So my question, though, is this, is that what does, and we t you, you alluded to sort of the, excuse me, the ephemerality of stuff what does longevity in the digital age mean for you oh that's that's a great question i think and this is uh i'm going to to frame this in the form of a question i get a lot okay uh, which is how how should i use button down if it's only owned by you know one person one person works on it what happens if you get sick or you get bored of button down or you get hit by a bus and that that last one is is always entertaining for me because are you familiar with this uh engineering concept of a bus factor no i'm not so the bus factor is really used in the context of like open source communities mm -hmm. uh, where it's a piece of software that's lasted a long time that there isn't one ostensible owner of it's uh maintained by, you know, a federated group of individuals. And okay. the bus factor for a given piece of software is how many people have to get hit by a bus for no uh, forward progress <laughs> to be made on this thing. So if a bus factor for a given project is one, it means if one person is hit by a bus, then that project is going to be abandoned because no one else knows how to operate it or how to improve it. Uh, you want the bus factor, right, to be as high as possible. Um, and so button down for a very long time, I had a bus factor of one. If, if I was hit by a bus, that would kind of be the end of it. Thankfully, that's, that's not the case now. Uh, there's a number of folks who have contributed to button down's code base on the back end who basically have uh, the, the programming equivalent of spare keys, right? Of like, oh, I'm going to be off the grid for a couple of days. Here's what you should watch. Uh, I like the... Uh, metaphors, a friend of mine who did this for me basically described it as digital house sitting of like, oh, all right, yeah. you're going to be away. Like, I'm going to come by and water the plants, make sure all the emails are going out on time and so on and so forth. The reason I bring that up is I think longevity is so chronically under discussed when it comes to software, mm -hmm. both in terms of being able to use an interface and having that interface be static for, for years and years and years, having your data with regards to that interface be omnipresent and easily accessible and just like you know even more basic than either of those things like having a piece of software last for an indefinite amount of time there's a also macabre term in in engineering called default dead versus default alive um, often really used to refer to startups where a startup is default dead if it's just going to go away unless someone makes it better uh, often referred to uh, with regards to like venture capital back stuff of like, okay, this is wildly unprofitable. It's going to have to shut down in six months unless all these criteria are met. Okay. And one of my big architectural goals with button down, especially on the back end, is to make sure no matter what, it was default alive of 
this was a thing that could exist on its own without my intervention for as long as possible. And, you know, when I talk to people about long as possible, they're like, oh, you mean years? And really, I'm trying to say like decades and centuries, right? Of like, you should be able to go to buttondown.email in the year 2050 and see an interface and see your archives and see your subscribers, even if you haven't logged in for 35 years. I think that's an important concept that is like alien to a lot of how we interact with software and how we interact with the web these days. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a very um, click to the next thing sort of way. It, it runs your way runs so counter to that. I love that though. That's awesome. Exactly. Every time I get an email that's sort of like, "Hey, this app that you used a couple of years ago is shutting down. You have one week to log in and export all of your data, or else it's going to be, you know, yeah. curtains forever." Uh, I just like my blood boils. I feel like the web is this beautiful opportunity to have a mediated relationship with time that you really don't get in a lot of physical goods, right? right. And instead, we've sort of turned the dial towards the opposite end of uh, relationships with your users as a developer can be so transactional and so expendable that you can build something and if people don't really want it, you have no moral obligation to keep it up and running. Um, I, I do have to like totally, not totally off the subject, but I do have to thank you for <laughs> answering a mystery that I have had since I ran the nonprofit. My engineering team kept talking about getting hit by a bus and I never knew what they meant. <laughs> you, you have solved a 15 year mystery for me. <laughs> so I there are a handful. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just saying, I appreciate that. There are definitely a handful of like engineering shibboleths that I forget even <laughs> exist, but I will refer to them um, like with, with my friends and my family who aren't in the engineering or development space. And they'll be like, what are you talking? Why are you mentioning being hit by a bus? And it's like, oh, right. This is a thing that is like in casual conversation in a work setting and just sounds so wildly bizarre in any other setting. And I just <laughs> kind of forget to to code switch. Well, if I have it, if any other pop up, I'll email you. Yeah. Solve this one for Perfect. me, Justin. What is what? What's wrong? <laughs> uh, but but the 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 longevity thing sort of plays into that. I, I there was a, a quote I had read, oh, sometime, and it stuck with me. I'm not sure I necessarily agree with all of it, and I'm paraphrasing it here. But it was that the internet is not a library, but it's a messaging system, and I don't quite agree with that in some regards. But it, I do see where they're coming from. In and I think that kind of goes into, you, you want it to be much more of a library. In in my exactly, yeah, okay, yeah, I, I or I, even, uh, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 go on. I think it's, and I'm sure there is some sort of uh, bibliotechnical metaphor that is really apt here that I can't quite place. Mm -hmm. But I think the library doesn't quite get what my vision is for what I think the web can and should be because library implies like some some level of central planning right like there is a single authority and at the end of the day I think the web is a library where you get to own what books you think should be in circulation um the web that I fell in love with you know back in uh, the really the early 2000s, late 20th century was this thing that felt wild Western in a really yep. positive, constructive way of, uh, I made my first friends on the internet by just like emailing people on discussion forums and like researching these random blogs from folks who I'd never met. And like, there was a level of play and discovery that it doesn't feel like there exists anymore. Yeah. Um, I think the web being some sort of like, a uh, huge sprawling sand pit where you can have these glorious structures built from the sand and you can destroy them if you want to, but you have the agency, you have the ability to say, I want this to stick around versus I want this to return to the flatlands. I think that's really as close as you can get to what my platonic ideal of the web could be. Uh, it kind of sounds like, a, like everybody is their own library. Exactly. And that reminds me of something William Gibson talks about, about um, your personal microculture. Mm -hmm. That it is. Talk to me more about that. What, what does that mean? Um, it's this idea that, yeah, and I, I am paraphrasing Gibson here and I am probably going to nail it wrong, but this is just, this is just stuck with me. 
was, you know, just a blog is a sharing of your personal microculture of the things that defined you. Uh, you know, the combat, like my newsletter covers everything. My blog has everything from twin peaks to universal monsters, to dog pictures, to me <laughs> saying fuck a lot. And, you know, as, as and so that's my personal microculture for better or for worse. And it is, in my understanding of Gibson's definition, I might be mistaken, but that's what it feels like to me. Um, and it just feels like in the best vision of the Internet, it is this sort of interaction of these personal microcultures. I couldn't agree more. There is one of my favorite I don't know what the right noun is, and that's probably part of the reason why they're one of my favorite, uh, let's just say people on the internet, um, is this this writer and publisher named Gwern, it's G-W-E-R-N. Um, and he has uh, a, a personal website built from scratch that is just the largest and most detailed and most random assemblage of esoterica that I've ever seen, where it's it's everything from like, uh, meta reviews of peer studies to him uh, self-reporting different drug tests to him talking about <laughs> anime to him talking about macroeconomics. It's just like this fascinating uh, glimpse into this person's brain. Like you so vividly browse this site and you have this like quick little sliver into how someone thinks and experiences the world. I think the ability to do that is just so neat and so cool and there are a lot of publishing platforms that will approximate that and get really close to that. And I think that's why like the entire concept of social networking is really, really useful. But I think the, uh, the core of microculture really is right. Like it's not a linked list of thoughts or ideas, but it's this bizarre branching path, this choose yeah. your own adventure of trying to understand someone and trying to understand their self-expression. Yep. And that was like how I've shifted my own, writing process into like the the, the Zettelkasten method of these weird links and stuff and in, in that I've just found like creativity comes from the collision of these weird links and these weird landscapes I guess for lack of a better term absolutely um so so you do everything with button down I mean you building it to the to customer service of a I am guessing a not inconsiderable number of, of emails never and you hold down a full-time gig and living a life you just moved you have a cool dog um and you somehow managed to be an absolutely pleasant human being i mean i would be a total shit um <laughs> but so it's beyond impressive but i mean so i guess the simple but not necessarily easy question actually two how do you do it and what makes it worth it oh i i like i like the framing of that as a two-parter. Um, I would definitely describe my life, and I, I say this with some level of, of irony or self-awareness, as like being jam-packed. Um, <laughs> and, and sometimes that's a great thing, sometimes that's a bad thing. There are, there are very few days where I feel like I have uh, a strong amount of, of slack or downtime. And I, I think that's completely fine. Um, I think if Button Down didn't exist today, and I had my life as it existed, I wouldn't be able to build it. Like I started building Button Down in a completely different phase of my life, right? I was in my mid twenties, I was single, I didn't have a wonderful dog, I didn't have quite all the, the you know, accoutrements and, and beautiful burdens that I, I now do. Um, but it, it means that like, I've had to approach how I spend my days in a very, I think, methodical way. I'm, I'm very surgical with, with how I spend my time, sometimes to a, a comically uh, aggressive point. My, my friends have long mocked me because they know unless they call me, like I'll always pick up my phone if I'm called, mm -hmm. but with texts, I will only really respond to texts first thing in the morning when I'm drinking my coffee and last thing at night as I'm getting ready for bed, because otherwise I just get too distracted. I'm kind of like uh, a dog where you throw a tennis ball in three different directions and I <laughs> don't know where to look and I get off task. Um, but I've given my life a lot of structure because I'm just the kind of person who likes routine and does really well with routine of like, okay, at 6 a.m. I'm waking up, I'm making some coffee, I'm taking Telemachus, my dog, for a little walk around the block and getting ready for the day. And then at seven, 
I'm making some breakfast, I'm sifting through emails and answering texts and so on and so forth. Uh, that level of rigidity is, you know, good in the in the sense of I get a lot of things done and I'm, I'm proud of that. I, I like being able to handle all these things and have all these disparate impacts while focusing on what really makes me happy at the end of the day, which is, you know, spending time working on things I care about, spending time uh, with my fiance, with my dog, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but in terms of what makes it worth it, because frankly, there are great days and weeks where I get, I stumble to the finish line of like a Friday evening or a Saturday evening. I'm like, I haven't had a time to breathe. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that's, that's really a good thing, right? Like, I think that is good on a week by week basis, but there have been months where it's just, you know, you can call it burnout. You can call it something less severe than that, where I can feel it in my bones of like, as soon as I open Gmail or as soon as I open like the bug tracker, I'm just going to be bummed out and I'm not going to feel good. And those, those are the, the months where I take a step back from button down. And I say, I'm going to respond to stuff if it's, if it's clearly urgent, but I'm not going to try and do anything net new because I need to prioritize sustainability over just like, you know, making sure new stuff gets shipped or adding to it or trying to, to market it more or do anything like that. Um, which again, comes back to this concept of having a high bus factor and being default alive. Of the reason Budnown has stuck around for so long and grown so consistently is that it's in a state where if I were to ignore everything and you know throw all of my electronic devices into the James River, it would last indefinitely. There would be some bugs and there would be some angry emails and I would have to do some refunds, but it would keep on going. And I think the thing that would give me existential dread is having to face the, the Sisyphean uh, task of answering every single email every morning or else the thing vanishes, right? Like button down has its rough edges and has its, its bugs every now and then and has um, some scaling stuff, especially over the last 18 months as the newsletter space and button down being a tenant in that newsletter space has grown and grown and grown, but it's self-sustaining. It can run on autopilot in a way that I really needed to because boy, there are weeks and weekends, even this, this past weekend, I was, down in Florida, I flew down for a friend's engagement party, and I just knew I couldn't I couldn't be in work mode at all for 72 hours. And like the, the luxury to do that and to say, if I really needed to, I could extend this from three days to three weeks is really, really useful. And I think there's a lot of stuff, I think, around, you know, lifestyle design and productivity and all of that. Um, and I think a lot of those things can be useful for optimizing, sort of like being a optimization function. But I think the the question I've really tried to answer more and more the past couple of years is like, what am I optimizing for? For a long time, it was building something I was proud of. I've done that. Like I'm I'm proud of Button Down, and I want to continue being proud of it. But now, how do I make sure it lasts the next forty years? And how do I make sure my relationship with it lasts the next forty years? So I we're going to head into the end of this, and I would be absolutely remiss if I, because as a as a fellow video game nut, um, <laughs> since your bio says you play video games, and I guess since we're talking about your tiny bit of breathing room, uh, what are you playing right now in your tiny bit of breathing room? Oh, great question. Um, so I've been very tempted to download Elden Ring, which I yes. presume you may or may not be familiar with. Have I, you played it? I have not played it. I it is it is beckoning to me. I am I am right <laughs> I am right. I just finished Far Cry six and I am making my way through the Yakuza series as like as fast as I can before they leave Game Pass. So that's been <laughs> uh, my my brother is more than a little upset with me for having downloaded and played maybe two hours of the most recent uh, Yakuza, what is it, Like a Dragon? I yes, think. I haven't gotten um, to that one yet. But It is. It, it was incredibly funny, um, and I was really enjoying it. Uh, I just have this, this weird tick where, so I have a, a Switch and a Xbox One, I think, whatever the, the newish Xbox is. Okay. Yeah. Um, and just because of, I think, where I end up tending to play games, it's usually when I'm traveling or I'm in bed. 
And I always end up defaulting to playing my switch. Mm -hmm. um, and so Yakuza, as good as it is, I'm just like never actually sitting down in my living room and playing video games and being like, this is how I'm spending my evening. It's always like a little bit later than that. And so portable games have been uh, really my lifeline for the past few years. Uh, but having all of my friends, literally all of them, talk to me about how great Elden's, uh, Elden Ring is, uh, is making me feel like I need to pull the trigger probably this coming weekend. Um, but to, to answer your question, I am playing a game that is, uh, I don't know if it has the worst name of any game that I've played, but it's definitely up there. It's uh, Triangle Strategy, which is, are you familiar with sort of the like strategy RPG genre of games? Yeah, like yeah. Fire Emblem and yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's basically that. Okay. Uh, the entire concept is uh, you are going through uh, one, of, one of these sort of like war-torn nations, you're... Uh, a, a princeling who becomes the, the king and you have to decide between various factions to align with and then there the, there's the war phase as well and I'm a sucker for any of those genres of games whether it's like the Fire Emblem games or the Tactics Ogre games or you know that like I love both the core gameplay mechanics and then also some of the like you know War of the Roses-esque polit political intrigue that yep. comes through and that's been a, a really fun game to to go through it's one of those things too which is like I, I need games where I can sit down, play it for an hour or so, and then stop playing and feel like, okay, I've made an appreciable level of progress and I've had some fun with this. As opposed to, they're, they're the games right where it's like, okay, the way to play this game is really you have to sit down for like a five-hour session of like yes. civilization or whatever. I struggle with those just because <laughs> the only way I end up playing them is I accidentally stay up until 2.30 in the morning uh, glued <laughs> to my screen, and that's not good for anyone involved. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm I, I'm on the, the Yakuza games. I, I'm dreading making a t another attempt at uh, the Sekiro Shadows <laughs> Die Twice game. Oh, yeah. I, I'm... I got so mad at that. I just, I, I don't know. I don't know if my blood pressure can take the the rage that that game instills in me. Um, Did but, you ever play Celeste by any chance? No. So Celeste is uh, a platformer. It's, okay. it's sort of like you know Mario style. You're you're jumping around, and what the reason I think of it a lot when people bring up the the From Software games, the the Spiro and the Demon Souls and all of that is. It was a game that there's, there's no other game I died more times in. And I know that because it has like a very helpful how many times you died tracker. And you're generally in the thousands by the end of the base game and in the tens of thousands by the end of the extended game where you're like trying to get through all the secrets and there's time limits and all of that. But the, the thing I loved about it is it had such a respect for you as a player mm -hmm. where, yes, you're going to die a bunch of times, but you're not going through any loading screens and you're not waiting like 15 seconds and you're not uh, going through five rooms that you've already cleared to get back to where you were. You die and then half a second later, you're back where you started at the start of each screen because each screen is kind of like a really, really difficult little timing puzzle that you have to navigate. And I loved that because it tied into the theme of the game which is about this like young woman trying to find herself and so she's climbing this mountain and having a really tough time doing it and i felt like i'm, I'm such a big sucker for like the metagame aspects where it's like the the gameplay ties into the story of the game or the message of the game in an elegant way mm -hmm. and it just did such a nice job of like yes you're gonna get frustrated but also the character who you're playing as is also really frustrated so that's the point of this, and you can overcome it. It was just so satisfying as a concept to play it. As okay, well. I'm gonna I'll I'll add that one to the list too. So uh, Matt, so where can um, people connect with you? Website, Twitter, all that good stuff. Of course, um, I am on uh, email first and foremost, uh, fittingly at me at jmduke.com. Um, I love getting emails from strangers. It's always a pleasure, both from a newsletter standpoint and just a personal standpoint. Um, I'm on Twitter, at JMDuke. And then I run a very weird sort of like quasi-blog, quasi-website, quasi-live stream of everything I'm reading and playing at arcana.computer. Cool. All right, Justin. Well, thank you so much, man. This has been fantastic. Of course. It was my pleasure. Thanks so much for inviting me on. So again, many thanks to Justin for taking the time to chat with me and for giving me 
and a not insignificant number of others the tool to create and communicate in a way that I didn't know that I wanted or needed until I found it. So with that in mind, if you are at all interested in starting your own newsletter, and you should be, I unequivocally recommend and endorse, for what it's worth, button-down is the best way to do it. Button-down.email. I do think, though, that I'm going to use my Tim Gunn save, as it were, as the host of this show, to give a better answer as to why I started my own newsletter in the first place. Because in spite of Justin's absolute generosity in bailing me out, my response or lack thereof has, has it, yeah, it's bugged me. So here's the best way I can think of to do it. Growing up, I hated pork chops. They were dry, as presented to me, they were dry, awful, shake-and-bake cardboard monstrosities. And I hated them into my adulthood until I learned to cook them properly myself and in my way. It's the same thing with newsletters. I hated what I had to write for the nonprofit. It was my first exposure to the medium. So, of course, if I don't like what I'm writing for the medium, and that's my first exposure, I'm going to hate, I'm not going to enjoy the medium. But I love what I'm writing now because in my, in my own thing because it's the best tool, best way I can think of to communicate myself and my vulnerabilities and whatever weird shit I throw into the world with my, to my readers. Basically, to answer the main question, though, why I started my own newsletter, the same reason why I wanted to learn to make pork chops. I started my own because I wanted to learn to love the medium. And it worked parentheticalrecluse.com slash letter. As ever, if you'd like to shout, scream, swear, say hi, or otherwise, my email is tww at parentheticalrecluse.com. You can check out earlier episodes of this show at parentheticalrecluse.com slash tsrpod and subscribe to future episodes via Apple Podcasts, RSS, or your preferred podcast delivery system. We'll see you next time.